how do we approach recovery from a crisis like COVID-19? Perhaps a better place to start is gaining a greater awareness and understanding of the disruption our society has experienced. Hello and welcome to Public Sector Perspectives, ideas and insights about the public sector during the COVID crisis. I'm Hayley Ricketson from IPA Victoria. This is a special two-part podcast looking at a report published by Cube Group here in Victoria. Cube Group is a consultancy group that works only with the for public purpose sector and have recently released a report about response and recovery during COVID-19. COVID-19 has been hugely disruptive to workforces across all sectors. And while our success in flattening the curve in Australia has put us in an enviable position, for many workplaces, the gap between response to COVID-19 and recovery from it is daunting. Managing partner of Q, Ben Shrum, and lead author of the report, Tom Craven, joined me to discuss From Response to Recovery, Delivering Public Value Through the Waves of the COVID-19 Crisis. Welcome, Ben and Tom. Hi, Hayley. Thank you for having us. Hi. Nice to be here. In the report, you outlined four waves of disruption to the workforce. Would you mind just running through them for me? Yeah, the, the four waves that were sort of our way of making sense of what the longer term journey look like, looks like for public value organisations in relation to COVID. So the waves are sort of recognising that the immediate crisis, that what we call the first wave, is just one of a series of impacts that are, go- that are going to affect public value services. The other three, wave two is, is a backlog that um, organisations are going to face of the non-urgent services that have been put on hold and now have this pent-up demand from the, from the times that they've been unable to deliver over the last few months. Uh, wave three, we're, we're, talking, we're looking at um, rising complexity and complications because for the last little while, many organisations have been unable to, to do the early intervention um, or the ongoing treatment work or other, or other activities that we normally use to reduce demand for our services. And without those, we'll see rising demand and complexity. And then, of course, the fourth wave is a, is a longer term and potentially quite a deep one, which is the fallout from the deep social and economic damage that the crisis is doing to Victoria. And, and we, know that, um, we, we know that long-term economic damage um, raises demand for a lot of our services, puts a lot of pressure on individuals and families, and that, and that flows into demand for public value services. So, yeah, the four waves are, are a long-term view of what the impact of COVID is likely to be on public value organisations. So looking at waves one and two, we seem to be at the tail end of wave one and sort of about to enter wave two, which is the backlog of non-urgent services. And you talk in the report about re-engineering processes around value, not efficiency. Can you just talk through what that means and how it could be applied to the different scenarios we'll be facing? I think even, Tom, it might be worth even mentioning at the outset, we, one of the things we've recognised, um, Hayley, in going through this process and, and perhaps what inspired us to some degree to, to write this piece is that, that many organisations across the public purpose sector are at different stages um, of this life cycle. So you know, some are still very deep um, in response, others are starting to turn their minds to recovery and others still are you know, much further forward in that recovery journey. So we're sort of seeing this, this spread um, of, um, of focus from organisations. So, so as we step through the report and speak about it today, I guess there's a recognition um, from us that there are different organisations um, at different stages of the, the COVID response and recovery journey. I mean, in relation to the backlog, I think where, where we're coming from there, just recognising 
that we're now something like two months into stage three restrictions, probably be more like three by the time a lot of organisations start to start to open up. And Victoria's public purpose sector, they we deliver an extraordinary amount of services every day and the need for those services doesn't doesn't go away during this crisis so there's a lot of discussion at the moment about the reopening up of elective surgery just to give a sense of the magnitude that 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 area is facing we had something like 50,000 people on the emergency on the elective surgery waiting list before the crisis started and Victoria would normally deliver something like 20,000 a month elective surgeries so this, I mean, it's more complicated than this, but the simple maths puts that at another 40,000 surgeries that didn't happen that are, that are waiting. And, and when you apply that dynamic across um, the different public value services on which our, our community relies, every one of them are gonna, uh, will be facing a similar sort of back, backlog in, in pent-up um, demand for their services or, or um, waiting lists for things that need to be done. So we estimate that the magistrate's court might have something like 100,000 matters waiting for it to deal with when they, when they reopen full, full services. Um, licensing agencies will have um, built up demand, um, all sorts of medical care, social services. The unfortunate reality is that managing those overwhelming levels of demand takes a lot of time and resources in itself. And if it's not done, done well, it can actually lead to self-perpetuating levels of demand. In the report, we, we give the example of child protection, which has experienced sort of double-digit growth in reports for many years now. And the, the cost that that's put on child protection in terms of investigating or managing, following up um, reports that it won't, it won't intervene with, uh, creates and it puts an enormous pressure on the child protection system itself and, and results in child protection not having the time to uh, invest in families, to um, be able to work with families to achieve uh, long-term outcomes. And those families often end up re-entering the child protection system. So that uh, effort to quickly get through uh, your demand can often lead to a lot of churn, a lot of families sort of re-entering the system. Um, Re-reports account for something like two thirds of child protection cases. So that, uh, I mean, that's not a criticism of child protection, but it's meant to be as an example of what damage overwhelming demand can do to a service system if it's not if it's not re-engineering its, its system to focus on delivering real value and to stop people coming in and out of the system again and again. That might be a point, Tom, um, where I could sort of add to the conversation around um, the idea of re-engineering processes around value as you described it. Um, and it's been interesting um, with a lot of the clients that I've been speaking to and hearing from is that many of them are describing COVID as the great disruptor. Um, and that's, um, in one sense, that's encouraging because it brings with it a message that opportunities exist for us to Think differently, think laterally, um, and be innovative, um, and sort of take that outcomes orientation. But the, the temptation is to, in in that sense, to dive straight into those initiatives and begin running very hard at you know, exciting opportunities for innovation um, and disruption without really understanding perhaps some of the benefits um, that they can provide in the longer term. And the children, youth, and families example you've given there's a good one, Tom. Um, in that respect. So I think we need to step back um, and really have the discipline to, to make sure that you know, through this fast moving crisis, we are still starting our conversations around outcomes. Um, and one way to do that, I think, is to, um, to reimagine the public value that your organisation is delivering you know, for communities, for economies, for our planet, um, because that public value, um, I think, is going to be different on the other side of COVID than it was going into it. Um, so it means reimagining the difference that you want to make as an organisation. Um, and getting clear on what that now looks like in terms of those um, that you're serving. That, that's really, I think, the building block we need um, before we start the re-engineering is that understanding of outcomes. I think specifically, um, there are probably a couple of ways I think that 
um, post-COVID, we will see the way we have traditionally described and conceptualised public values shifting. Um, I think the first of those is that we are going to see a far deeper focus on um, the emotional state of communities um, and a greater connection um, to themes such as community confidence, community pride, community resilience, um, and community cohesion. We've seen some, some great work from the Scanlon Foundation on that over many years, and the roles that organisations now play in influencing um, those emotional factors. Um, and I, the second one I think, which is a sleeper but important, is that I think we need to, to start unpacking the public part of public value and start to segment community more in our minds um, as leaders of organisations. Um, and that's because we all perceive value differently and the way we receive it, COVID has shown us that the impacts of the COVID crisis had been felt by segments of our community so differently. Youth, elderly, um, Tom mentioned youth earlier, people with a disability, um, existing or entrenched disadvantage, and many more. So I think we're gonna see a much stronger focus um, post COVID on that value that Tom described and being specific about how it's being delivered for individuals' needs. That's a theme that I think is coming through um, from COVID. It really builds on this idea of leaving no one behind. Um, and I think we'll see organisations starting to reframe their, their role and their identity in a post-COVID world that is you know, much more oriented towards um, this sort of changing um, way of thinking about public value um, for communities. I'm wondering just to, just to round out your question, Hayley, to sort of come back to what that means for, for processes. I think Ben's, Ben's points just highlight um, probably our key point around the idea of efficiency and, and preparing leaders to expect a, a great deal of pressure around efficiency and, and to try and push back against that instinct to, to jump quickly to delivering throughputs, getting, getting your getting your targets up or getting your, your, your um, that, that ruthless focus on efficiency, but without that, that backward step to, to think about outcomes and values. Um, uh, that during a time of overwhelming demand is actually a time where, where what your values are, having a really clear understanding of what your values are really matters and, and reorientating your processes around that um, is, is critical over and above a focus on, on simply just doing the same thing quicker. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. I agree. I think that there's just that that classic tendency, you know, when the pressure's on to be in the important and urgent zone um, and running hard, head down. But uh, and yeah, you can get some efficiencies and, and outcomes out of that. But stepping back and being a bit more sophisticated in the way we think about um, the public value we're delivering and who to um, now, particularly as we go through this life cycle and the four waves as we've described them, uh, is going to become more and more vital. It's, it's quite easy to apply the findings of the report to those service delivery roles, like health services, social services, et cetera. But as you say, these are waves that will be felt across the whole public sector. What are the main threads of this report that can be applied across the whole public sector from just say a frontline worker to a communications officer or to, to institutions like Parks, Parks Victoria that will also be affected by the hard hit tourism industry. It's really great to really great to raise that. I think one of the one of the dangers when you write a report about COVID is is it has too much of a health focus, whereas that was certainly not what we were hoping for. I think I think Australia's in a fortunate position to to see that the impact of COVID is much more than a health system problem. Clearly, it's um, it's become a socio-economic crisis, and it's a huge service delivery challenge uh, for everyone. So certainly, um, even the first wave, that immediate response to COVID, yes, that has a bit of a health system orientation. But but all organisations are actually in that first wave of crisis of working out how to deliver 
their services in a in a socially distant world, how to get their um their teams online, uh, their their normal face to face functions delivered delivered without without those interactions is is a crisis that all types of um, public uh, public purpose organisations are, are going through at the moment. Um, so that's relevant, I think, to everyone. What, whatever your role is, whatever um, whatever organisation you're in, whatever your role looks like, you are you are part of a, um, a service delivery challenge and crisis of how to get your how to get your services operating in the social socially distant world. And I think I think that's aware to all of us. I guess the key message from us, um, particularly for organ all organisations in in that first wave, is that you can only operate in a crisis mode for a certain period of time. In all likelihood, the uncertainty, um, despite our remarkable achievement in, in reducing the transmission of the, of the virus, in all likelihood, the uncertainty around COVID is going to be with us for months, not, not weeks. And that, that means periods of you know, up, to, up to six months more of, of significant disruption, um, which is too long to be operating in a crisis orientation. We're really keen to encourage organizations to be defining that new normal what that new, new normal is for them that is sustainable for a period of time that that is, is relatively long and and that is also flexible to to what the various situations that they might follow it so that means i mean for all organizations that means thinking about the way your workforce is managed thinking about your decisions are, are being made thinking about the risks that your organization is exposed to that that maybe are not a priority for the first two or three weeks of the crisis but but begin to become really important the longer they go on. Yeah, how how your 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 teams are developed, how well workforce is developed, how your stakeholders are managed, all those parts of your of daily business. Um, for once, we think about a period of uncertainty that is going to last for a considerable amount of time. Those core parts of your business really need to be reset for that for that medium term. Yeah, I imagine there's quite a sort of there's a, a balance between. The, the change to the internal processes and the change to the external, the service you're providing or the work you're doing, like how that's changing and then how how the way you do it changes as well. And when you talk about that sort of external environment, Haley, I think that it's interesting over the past few weeks, I've been facilitating um, some wonderful conversations across Victoria's nine regional partnerships where um, we've had a wonderful cross-section of um, state, federal um, and local government, local community and, and industry leaders. And we've been exploring um, opportunities and challenges around socioeconomic recovery um, and long-term regional resilience. And one of the things that I've observed um, during those conversations that I think speaks to sort of Tom's point as well is that when we're seeing organisations, communities, economies in this state of disruption, and we, we keep using that word and coming back to it, and that's the reality we're in, new relationships and opportunities for collaboration and partnership start to emerge. Um, and I think there's a, what I'm observing is that there's a malleability um, to organisations that you don't see as often when we're in BAU and times of peace. And as Tom sort of mentioned, where you, you know, you head down, you're, you're ticking the business plan off, you're meeting ministerial statements of expectations, you're um, getting your briefings up. It's, it's a different environment. And so this, this crisis is sort of creating almost what I'd describe as an open-mindedness to partner um, through each of the four waves, I think, um, that we've outlined in the report. And so I think that means, you know, there's opportunities for collaboration that are on the table that, and that can be pursued that weren't, um, you know, wouldn't have even perhaps even made it past the starting blocks only six months ago. Um, but they're, they're available now. Um, so what does that mean if you're a leader in a public purpose organisation today? I think... Another observation I'd make and that I notice with many leaders is you've often got kind of a situation where 
you know, many people think something is a good idea, but it takes someone to go first. Uh, and that's the reality of partnerships. And I think now is a time for brave leadership uh, in the public purpose sector and, and being willing to go first across each of these four waves to explore what is really an unprecedented opportunity for partnerships. Um, there's receptiveness out there um, if you are willing to make the first move and, um, and open the conversation. And I'd be encouraging uh, modern, agile um, organisational leaders to do so. I'd love to come back to your, your point about communications, which actually links pretty well to Ben's comment about partnership. Obviously, for something, an example like communications relating with stakeholders is one area where we've relied on face-to-face for a very long time and, and um, the social distancing requirements have put a stop to all of our meetings, all of our town halls, all of our meet and greets. So for those public servants or, or public purpose organisations, which that's a big part of their role, um, this crisis is obviously ra- raising big questions for them about how to do that, even at a time when we are communicating a lot, obviously, via social media and other, and other means. I suppose our, our encouragement is to recognise that, you know, as, as this period of restrictions becomes, well, it is already months and becomes, you know, something like six months, that is a really long time to go without clear communications and engagement. And so while there's a lot of communication going on to, you know, priority sectors or in relation to the health system, if uh, for those organisations that are a little bit away from the front line of the crisis, I suppose, a little, a little bit out of sight and out of mind, that is, yeah, we're, we're going to get up to a period of, of months without, without these dedicated engagements. That is a really long time. And face-to-face or, or, or leadership and communication, that's a big part of what public organisations do. It's a big part of what leadership is. And we, we really do need to be uh, working hard to think about what communications looks like in, in this environment and working out what replaces those face-to-face sessions. I thought it was um, really noticeable, the backlash to the decision of the public inquiry into the murder of Hannah Clark and her children, that, that horrible domestic violence uh, incident that happened earlier in the year. A decision was made to sort of cut that parliamentary inquiry short um, and clearly experienced a, a severe a large backlash for doing that on the one hand you can understand the decision made to to put something like that uh, cut something like that short within the current crisis but i think there was a clear message from everyone that that actually says no these matters that are um, important to us they're still important to us and being heard our priorities and our issues being being heard and being um, put on decision makers agendas that's still really important to the to the public and to the community and it is incumbent upon public service leaders to find ways for them to do that. We've, we've been, been really impressed with the thinking and effort that's been going on with Bushfire Recovery Victoria to, to work out how they engage with bushfire-affected communities remotely and without large, large uh, town hall meetings, which is clearly a part of what would normally happen. Um, those communities still need to be heard. They still need to have their experiences understood. And, and there's, there's a lot of really great thinking going on about how to do that might be encouraging all sorts of public values uh, organisations to think about how they can still have that deep connection with their constituents and stakeholders, um, even if they're doing it remotely. That's such a great call, Tom. And I'd add to that, I think often when we have conversations with leaders about um, you know, our recommendation to do exactly as Tom's described there around consulting um, deeply, putting community at the centre of our thinking, stakeholders, partners, and within our organisation, we often receive this um, you know, um, comment around consultation fatigue. comes up all the time. And it's interesting. I think um, over many years I've come to, to believe that, yes, of course, consultation um, fatigue can exist, but in many, many cases it can be a limiting belief. 
And when you dig a bit deeper and you get underneath and you speak to individuals uh, about um, the, their experience with consultation, what you soon come to realise is that it's actually poor consultation fatigue that's being experienced uh, because they've, they've had a bad run at um, or they've received you know, really poor attempts at consultation. It's not been thought through. It's not been authentic. It hasn't been easy to engage with. And therefore, yeah, they are fatigued because it hasn't been an enjoyable, easy experience or their feedback hasn't been listened to and acted on. So my view, my strong view is that organisations and individuals have a far greater propensity for consultation than many people believe. Uh, and I think we need to really lean into that. Yes, consultation fatigue can exist, but focus more on smart, strong, good consultation, um, and then really listen to those you're consulting with on the back of that to understand if that's working or not. Another thing I might actually add to that um, while we're chatting about this, this topic, guys, is another thing that I think is going to be um, a, a really, really important for public purpose organisations. And look, it's not, at the, it's not at the sort of sexy end of the scale around disruption, transformation and all the wonderful things that, you know, we are hearing um, being spoken about now. But it is around the way in which you take um, that, that transformation and make it stick. Um, and really what I'm thinking here is about the relationship of organisations to change. Um, and I think that across all of the four waves, um, change management is just going to be so, so important for organisations to enact the sort of pivots that they're now looking at um, um, and respond to the challenges that Tom um, has outlined. So I think yeah, we're thinking big, um, but how do we get that, that in um, and get it sticky? Well, and it's, 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 it's going to be disciplines around project management. How do we manage projects? It's going to be about communication and engagement, which we've just spoken about. Um, consultation with stakeholders, communities, co-production, and, and moreover, just building change-ready cultures and the organisations that accept that change is constant um, and that you know, there'll be another one. Um, how do we brace for that? How do we future-proof and being um, a change-ready organisation? So I really think project and change management in order to um, take us from transformation, disruption to execution and actually making a difference with our redesigned um, services is going to be vital. It's a big gap, to be honest, that we notice and we're often engaged by our clients to come in and support with quick stand-up of project and change management capability. And it's vital, otherwise these ideas are not going to translate to the ground where um, services are, are desperately needed on the other side um, of COVID. So, yeah. Building blocks of change um, and project management um, need to be under there for the big transformation to take. Wonder if a, a great example of what you were just talking about, Ben, is um, we're, we're currently supporting um, NCN Health in, in Northern Victoria with their strategic plan. And, and you would have thought if there was any organisation that would um, be experiencing consultation fatigue or a fatigue of any kind right now, it would be a health service. But the level of engagement from the NCN Health community in that process has, has just been fantastic. And, Actually, the opportunity to do things remotely has unlocked ways of engaging with that community, which are, which are really wonderful. A little example is that obviously the, the um, care, the aged care homes, that, uh, the aged care facilities that are run by NCN Health, they're really, really important that they are um, 100% safe and, and NCN Health is obviously putting a huge priority on the safety of those residents. So their ability to participate in a in a consultation session you you, you would think might be might be a bit um, curtailed but actually we're in conversations now about being able to place some things on an ipad and have uh, some of the workers in those aged care facilities actually sit down with residents and and get, do do the survey and get them to provide their input into the ncn health strategic plan there's actually you know um 
a wonderful opportunity for those residents to feel connected um, to the wider community that they're shut off um, from to a large degree in order to keep any risk of transmission down. And uh, yeah, that the engagement's been just wonderful. Um, so in, in a strange way, that's, that's unlocked a, a possibility of engaging those residents in the strategic plan for the organisation yeah. in a way that, gee, I, I don't know if we've ever done it that well before. Yeah, I love that, Tom. And I think I can give another example that's right on, on point with that one. And it's in the emergency management sector. And, you know, over many years, we've done um, strategic planning and operating model design in that sector. And, you know, I remember a few years ago, I was speaking with a couple of the chief officers and CEOs and, and, of the services. And, and it was really my, my question around, you know, assuming we wouldn't go too hard with consultation during the fire season. And the response that came back was, no, that's actually, you know, it doesn't stop, you know, after the fire season, we'll have flood, we'll have other disasters around the corner. Um, and in many ways, the richness of the input that you receive during consultation when we are at war, um, as we call it in the emergency services sector, is is remarkable, uh, which is similar to the health service example you gave, Tom. So I think that, again, just comes back around to the importance of don't be scared of engagement, but geez, do it well, you know, be targeted make sure that it makes sense to the people you're engaging with. Even if they're busy, they'll come at it. They'll be, they'll be open to the engagement if it's well thought through, authentic and targeted. That brings us to the end of part one of this episode of Public Sector Perspectives. Part two of the discussion with Ben and Tom from Cube Group will be available next week. Public Sector Perspectives is produced by IPA Victoria. If you missed the last episode, Dr Wesley Payne McClendon discusses what leadership in a crisis looks like and how we can transform our workplaces, our teams and our leaders for the better post-COVID. All episodes of Public Sector Perspectives are available on the IPA Victoria SoundCloud page. You can get in touch with Public Sector Perspectives by emailing info at vic.ipa.org.au or via IPA Victoria on all the usual social media channels. I'm Hayley Rickardson, and thanks for listening.